Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Today is April 26th. Uh, where, do, where do we start? Oki, Nanago, Miko Chase, Tisakomaki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S. Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are now Treaty 7, signed September 22nd, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, composed of the Wesley, Chiniki, and Bearspawn Nations, and the Dene from the Sutina Nation. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Status, Inuit, Non-Status, Across Turtle Island, as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. I honor the Blackfoot. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot, Mokinstis. Now that I have a visual, I can hit my elbow. <laughs> I was born here as Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellowknife Dene, which is a, its own long story of getting status. Um, my father is so Canadian that I am the daughter of the Mayflower, daughter of the American Revolution, while having an Indian Act and Post status card. I acknowledge my Dene lineage and that I was born in Calgary, but my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare People, also called the Great Bear Lake People in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Kunchotine Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many horse town named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical to creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the guests, uh, the host as, as I am a guest, and I acknowledge my role as a treaty partner, and hopefully all people acknowledge their roles as treaty partners. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I can share what I know as I walk down my red road. If you're experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we talk about today and want to talk, there is a First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll-free, open 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week, and there's also hopeforwellness.ca where you can text. Uh, Non-Indigenous, there are distress centers in your area. Uh, my Patreon account, I had an extra donor give me an, an extra $50. I want to say thank you to you. Uh, I want to thank all of my previous donors for already showing your support. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. For those that could not afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And I want to give a super um, shout out to my loyal donors. Adam, Alexandria, Beatrice, Brian, Celine, Diana, Jocelyn, Judy, Karen, Kenna, Leah, Marisa, Natalie, Nathan, Rebecca, The Sprawl, Tiffany, Vanessa, and Veronica. So, I actually have a guest today, and I got a tip when I'm talking to a guest that you can actually click on them so that you get to see them more. So, I am going to see how I can do that. Does it work? <laughs> hi! Hello, hello, hi. Hi, how, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Jacqueline Tempolsky. I am Métis. I actually 
contacted you because you are one of the first people I've ever found on the wide web of the internet um, that has lineage from the same place that I do. Um, my mother's family is Northern Slavey Dene as well. Um, my mom and her siblings were all born up in Yellowknife. Um, I was born in Hinton, Alberta, lived most of my life in Edmonton, uh, and I now live um, in Ottawa where I'm doing my master's degree. Um, and I also want to acknowledge that where I am recording is on unceded Algonquin territory. So just because we're in different places, I wanted to include an additional land acknowledgement. Um, yeah, that's kind of the, the basic back, background of my biography, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm really glad that you contacted me. Actually, when I read your uh, message. I'm like, oh my god, I have to get her on my show. <laughs> oh, I was, I couldn't believe you wanted me. <laughs> <laughs> well, to me, it's about. Um, I think like the biggest thing I've learned being out and about, and even my own personal journey, is that it took me a long time to identify who I am. Um, mm -hmm. I would, I was really embarrassed with who I was. Actually, I wouldn't identify as native at all. And through the course of who, like where I've come to now, of course I do, but. Um, even understanding who I am was its own journey. So to mm -hmm. me, um, I just want to showcase anyone listening that's especially, you know, Native, if they're listening, hopefully they can hear, you're not alone in knowing who you are, feeling proud of who you are, and the journey it got to get here to be proud and, who, and know who you are. It takes a long time for a lot of us. So that's why I wanted to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, and it's... Um... It's definitely a journey. That's kind of how I'm looking at it right now, because I, I kind of, I, I definitely don't think it's a linear journey either. I, I sometimes feel really confident and really accepted. And, and these are just personal feelings, obviously. There's, I've never encountered anyone within the Indigenous community or broader communities that's really made me feel unwelcome. But it, it's more of like this internalized thing, being so white presenting compared to other people, things like that, and not having grown up with um, that, the, the cultural knowledge and, and having it be something I had to figure out for myself and obviously making a lot of mistakes um, and continuing to make a lot of mistakes. And, you know, fortunately, I'm getting a lot of support where people are, you know, helping me and, and educating me. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a journey. <laughs> It is, it is. How long have you, um, you know, introduced yourself as Native in some capacity? And even the idea that you're Métis, like, what, why do you identify as Métis? Um, oh, those are good questions. Um, I think probably, well, I, my mom, I don't even think I really knew that I was Métis until I was maybe 10 or 11. And we were in social studies class and we were talking about the, you know, Hudson's Bay Company <laughs> and, you know, mom says, oh, you know, what are you working on or whatever? And then it gets brought up and it was, oh, yeah, you're Métis. And I was like, <laughs> that, that's how not a part of our lives it was. Um, and then when I started at high school, I went to St. Francis Xavier High School in Edmonton and they had a fabulous um, program there run by a, a wonderful man named Jeremy. And it was specifically for Indigenous students just to learn um, about uh, Indigenous culture or to participate. Um, and so it was, it was quite a variety that way too, where there was some very knowledgeable people and very immersed people with a lot of pride. 
and then people like myself who were like I <laughs> hello <laughs> I don't know what to say I don't know what to do <laughs> um so that was kind of that was kind of where that started um I think we got even not not that this is the most important part of it but even just going through the process of getting our Métis cards I don't think I did until I was 18. Um, and then, and it was actually quite an involved process, as I'm sure many people know. Um, but it was just something that I never really prioritized until I was old enough more to do it by myself. I had a lot of support from my family, but I had to do things on my own just to get it going through. Um, so that was kind of when that all started. And, and then university as well. Um, I did my undergrad at the University of Alberta, and they have a fabulous first people's house there and they were really inclusive and really supportive and that was probably um, where I kind of the, the journey really began and then working in corrections unfortunately was um, I mean it's for, we're fortunate that any element of indigenous culture makes it into corrections and is um, supported but that was actually probably the primary place where I had access to that community um, which is unfortunate yeah no kidding um i was talking to my husband last night about uh you know our journey down the red road and well one i was grateful he went with me because if he wouldn't have then i don't know if i would be here right now frankly um but the other part is that um you know it, it, that we actually through a social services program that's how we really got connected to the local elders and that that's the sad reality but um it was a voluntary social services program and that was the only reason why I joined it. But um, we did have apprehensions within our family. Um, my, my direct cousins, um, all of my direct cousins were apprehended by one of my aunties. And, um, you know, and, and that's a stigma that just seems to stick in a family. So um, to me, I was like, okay, well, maybe if we start with this program, I'll have, you know, allies within the system. And then that way, maybe I'll have support. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. But anyway, I did connect with a bunch of the elders. And that is really how I got here today. Because if it wasn't for that program, I don't know if um, my journey down the red road would have been good. Because I've actually experienced so much lateral violence, especially in the local community. Um, and so I, I like there are lots of prominent people that are, are local to Calgary that I, I just can't even work with because they they're just mean, <laughs> point blank, you know, because um, you're not Blackfoot, you're not Treaty 7, you're not, um, uh, I identified as Métis for a long time, because my understanding was, I was a half-breed, but they were like, but you literally have an Indian mm -hmm. Post status card, and I'm like, yeah, but I'm still a half-breed, because when I was growing up, I identified as, well, I'm part Native, and they'd be like, well, how Native are you? And I'm like, well, my mom's Native, like, you yeah. have a card? Yeah, I got a card. And that's that yeah. was you get free school. <laughs> yes. No, you know how many <laughs> speeches the first I session. open up. I open up my speeches with I pay taxes and I, yep. I didn't get a free university education and I've already <laughs> blown the minds of every Canadian in the room. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the big one and they'll be like, Well, do you live on reserve? Why do you get to have free school? And I'm like, uh, I, I didn't get free school. <laughs> You know what? I've met yet to meet someone that even if they got some assistance, like they still have $30,000 worth of student debt. And I like that's mm -hmm. one against the treaties, but two, you know, that myth that we all get free university education. 
I mean, if somebody gets a scholarship to go to university, we don't condemn them. But with Indigenous, totally, all, you know, bets are off, gloves are off. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, it's a weird, uh, like, weirdly hostile way to begin a conversation. And I don't know why people are so hostile as it relates to that. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I, I'm sure you've experienced a lot of uh, racism in the course of your life as well, um, growing up in Edmonton. Um, so I grew up, I was born here in Calgary. We moved to Fort McMurray for two years, right at the time, actually, that they were like eliminating all of the Métis in Moccasin Flats. That's the time that I lived there. I don't recollect any of that, but I know my dad worked for uh, Tinkfruit and Suncor. And then uh, we moved to Sylvan Lake. And then when I graduated from high school, I moved back to Calgary. But my mom and my uncle and my granny all live in Edmonton. So, and I have another auntie that lives in Edmonton too. So there's lots of family in Edmonton. And, um, but the irony is that a lot of my family tolerate racism. They don't, they're just like fit in. <laughs> so I don't get a lot of support from either my Indigenous side um, in, and my non-Indigenous side. They don't understand at all why I would mm -hmm. want to understand who I am. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah and, and that's a very kind of similar story for me on my end where, um, you know, as I have previously communicated to you in that long message I sent you on Instagram. Um, yeah, like it, 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 figuring out who I am wasn't this journey that I got to take with my family. And I have a tremendous amount of cousins and aunties and uncles and stuff like that. Um, and there are a few people within our family that are very, um, you know, enriched and, and a part of that community, but they live up in Yellowknife. Um, or, you know, just are not accessible to me as a student uh, <laughs> because I can't travel to see them and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, like I, even, even my brother and my mom, they're not, um, and, you know, and I don't fault them for this, but they just don't, they're not as big of a part of taking a very active, active step and figuring out, you know, all that we're missing kind of. Yeah. And it really yeah. sounded like school was really helpful for you. Um, I graduated high school in 94 and that was before they had like, you know, learning centers or uh, basically safe indigenous spaces in, mm -hmm. in the universities. So I, I never did end up going to university. Um, I thought I could because I was told my whole life I have this card so I get a free university education, but it didn't work out that way. And when I was trying to talk to my guidance counselor in like grade 11, grade 12, she clearly had no clue how to access um, money for uh, Indigenous folks to go to school. So she was like not a guidance counselor for me in any way, shape or form. So when I did move to Calgary, I ended up, um, I, like I took odd jobs. I, I even worked at 7-Eleven when I first got here. But uh, I went to state at night and I um, worked during the day, like an, even at a paper printing company. Um, in order to get my drafting under my belt so that I could start drafting. And uh, so that's like, and I took debt for that. I never knew how to go through the process of, uh, you know, accessing cash or anything. And we certainly didn't have, even when I went to state, we still didn't have like a indigenous friendly space for uh, indigenous people to go. And um, the Friendship Center, when I first moved here in 95, 
like it was not friendly. I walked into that door and you could just see the scowl and the look on their face. Like, what the fuck are you doing here, white girl? And I felt that way inside. (laughs) So I just, you know, I never, I never connected really to the friendship center at first. And it wasn't until later when I was, uh, like I had my daughter in 2007. So it wasn't even until past then that I started being like, okay, I'm going to go back to the Friendship Center and check it out. And, you know, I just started following social media was a wonderful tool because it finally connected mm-hmm. to organizations without bypassing the, the person, the judgmental receptionist at the front that was hurtful, like in what, 95, <laughs> you know, like you could just bypass that and be like, okay, mm-hmm. there's a community event. This is where it's at. And then you just start showing up and you start going. And before you know it, you know, you, how you make friends and that's how it worked. If it wasn't for social media, I don't know if I would have seen the, you know, poster for the social services program that we ended up accessing all the elders through, you know, so like there's, it's uh, serendipitous in so many ways. Yeah. I kind of had that. I, I feel like I'm re going through that where I was starting to feel comfortable within the community and in the Edmonton area um, and then moving here to start my master's, I came here um, at the end of August, uh, 2019 now. Um, oh gosh, April 2020. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I um, now that I'm coming here again, and I I feel it, it it feels like I'm brand new to it again, where I'm I'm scared to go to anything, and I'm you know because there's there's so many different communities too, and so even you know where I could say oh I'm you know I can trace lineage even if I don't have that and not that anyone I've never met anyone in, in my own experience that has been like you're not this enough you can't come here but I just you, I feel really nervous and, and young <laughs> again kind of about it yeah well so, if you ever come to Calgary or Treaty 7 let me know and then we'll go mm-hmm. together so <laughs> yes I would, I would love that yeah. I would love that I every intention of coming back to Alberta as soon as this is all all this COVID stuff is done and then it can travel safely again what are you taking in school? So I did my undergrad in criminology um, at the U of A, and then I am now at Carleton University in Ottawa, and they don't officially have a graduate level um, criminology program. So I'm officially doing a master's of arts in sociology, but it's very much um, crim focused. And it's actually, <laughs> I feel like it's such a loaded question. And whenever you ask a grad student what they're doing <laughs> with school, um, but the, the very basics of my thesis focuses on um, the rate at which Indigenous people apply into and then are accepted into drug treatment court programs. Um, And my big kind of, this is informed from my own experience working in corrections. Um, But the big thing I noticed when I was working in corrections and when I was working at the drug court in Edmonton was the um, kind of reduced Indigenous representation as it relates to the overrepresentation of Indigenous people just in jails and prisons. Um, and so basically what my thesis hopes to do is to quantify that Indigenous people likely aren't applying into drug courts as much as they, as, as much as non-Indigenous people, and then that they're actually being excluded a little bit more, be it like um, systematically or, you know, unintentionally, but, or, or intentionally, I guess that's kind of a wait and see thing as how the research goes but yeah that's kind of the focus <laughs> right on yeah I'm pretty sure Carl the Carlton isn't that where Seb Millette is with, with who sorry 
there, I, I want to say there's a fellow named Seb Millette there, and he's a, a Métis scholar. Um, I follow Maybe. him, and he gives a lot of information about, because, uh, like, where we're from, Alberta and such, like, we have all the Red River Métis and such, but in our lineage, mm-hmm. it's it's not necessarily connected to Red River. It's just the, um, you know, first half-breeds, really. Um, but our... Uh, you know, Quebec cousins who had the first real like half breeding happening, um, they have like all of this history, and I feel like there's a really con- uh, concerted concerted effort at this moment to really erase all of that history, which is I can't understand it. Um, but here, like in Alberta, because there's been so much of that um, hostility and lateral violence in the Métis community. Like even uh, someone as prominent as uh, Colleen Klein, Ralph Klein's wife, has been excluded from a lot of these conversations when she was the advocate for Indigenous rights in Alberta in like our previous generation, right? So um, those are things that I'm really Mm -hmm. concerned about, really worried about. But I know Carleton has some good Indigenous, like uh, the U of A has a good uh, group of Indigenous people. So does Carleton trying to think there's some other prominent Mm -hmm. professors that I follow on Twitter that uh, are are there so I'm hoping that uh, you find your space there because you obviously deserve to be there and uh, your thesis sounds amazing (laughs) thank you I I hope I hope it uh, it you know it's in kind of I would say I'm like 35 percent into it right now so it's it's coming together Um, it you know it'll be a little bit challenging just you know what, this is actually um, a really funny thing that has come up in my research is I was trying to get demographic information from the courts in Alberta. And I have a friend who works there and I said, hey, um, what's like the best way that I could go about this? And she kind of stopped me in my tracks and she's like, you know, I would be surprised if you can just get basic demographic information. It's, it's like in something so simple as... Um, you know, Indigenous or non-Indigenous identifying, she's like, I don't know how how easy it's going to be for you to find that information because it's just not systematically recorded and stored in a way that's like really accessible. And I think that's kind of damning in a way that, you know, we no one wants to show how bad it is. And if we don't record it, no one can call us out on it. And I, I that's kind of my, what I'm thinking is happening. I, who knows, but maybe it's just that they're under-resourced or a bit of both, but I think it's systematic. I know exactly what you're talking about because when I was researching, even before I had my daughter, um, you know, the type of stats that would always come out were awful. Like news articles against Indigenous people were awful about, you know, how we're basically inferior people. But yet I would look for the stats and find out that actually Indigenous were excluded from stats even back then. And I'm like, how can that be? How how can we still be there? And uh, today, here we have the COVID-19 and uh, the territories actually are not keeping stats of who's infected, who's Indigenous, and who's non-Indigenous. So we don't know if they're Inuit, we don't know if they're Dene, we don't know if they're Métis, or we don't know if they're Settler. We just don't even know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really it's a really weird problem. And then you know, especially in light of all these like this narrative that's being created that we're so committed to reconciliation, you know, just like these really basic steps that could in the context of the system that's trying to fix it, I recognize that we could probably have a different system. But if you're if you're trying to work in the systems that exist, 
you know, at least the system, the system could at least do its part to, if they're so committed to reconciliation, to recording it in a way that they deem meaningful, you know, like these, these little things. And so it's, it, yeah, it feels very like, you know, hypocritical to me and it's like, oh, well, you know, all this stuff matters so much, but you know, you can't, you can't get policy changed without data, but we're not going to record the data. And yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's across the way. When uh, uh, Justin Trudeau gave it in the mandate letters that every single portfolio had to start having some type of like indigenous inclusion because there's no relationship more important than that with indigenous. Um, you would think this would be a basic, you know, okay, let's start with yeah. collecting stats and they don't even do that. Um, Jane Philpont was the first minister ever to be like, okay, let's collect all the data on the water. And then not only collect that data, but then set goals to start giving everybody clean drinking water. So that means every single Indian Affairs Minister up to Jane Philpont was that useless, really. Yeah. <laughs> That's the perfect way to describe it. Yeah. It, it, just, it just seems so basic. It, again, if the system values these things so much, <laughs> why, are, why aren't you including it? Yeah, and it, yeah. It, I feel I feel frustrated constantly. <laughs> you know, um, one of the things that I found really <laughs> empowering in uh, doing the course of all of this research, I, I read a really great book called White Fragility. And one, I go yeah. back to it all the time, whenever I'm feeling a little down, like, how can you be so blind? Because that helps gives me the words to say, okay, people are just being fragile. But the other component mm -hmm. in there that I found so empowering was that they actually had this expression called racial battle fatigue. And I contacted the profs that coined that term down in the States. And they said, as an indigenous person, feel free to use that all the time. And I, I bring it up to empower indigenous all the time. And that, that book, White Fragility, I would love to write um, Settler Fragility because it's the same concept. Because I, I, I'm, I'm in Calgary. I live in the Northeast and I have lots of people from India, Pakistan, um, Filipino community. We have a huge Filipino community in the Forest Lawn area. So we have all of these newer immigrants that come here and like our mayor, Nenshi, he actually used to say there was nothing here in Calgary, nothing. And all of these wonderful immigrants from all around the world built this beautiful city. And some elder kind of sat him down and said, dude, so here's a land acknowledgement. <laughs> and now he has a beautiful <laughs> land acknowledgement that he, he, he does, which is like a hundred million times better than when he first got elected. But mm -hmm. like um, I ran for city council the last go around and I, I called everybody else on that. I'm like, okay, so they took the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and made their own report called the White Goose Flying Report. And I asked every single candidate, every mayoral candidate, okay, so what are you going to be doing for the White Goose Flying Report? And even the mayor didn't know what I was talking about at first. So, you know, mm -hmm. like, there's such a disconnect when it comes to uh, this, but the irony and you being in corrections, you would know what I'm talking about. The amount of money that is put into something like corrections, rather than into, you know, mental health to talk about intergenerational trauma and addictions and, and going from there like the cost is is so ridiculous and yet i come from conservative um province that thinks they're all about fiscal responsibility and it's like well if you really wanted to solve this problem <laughs> then oh. 
right? You're, you're just speaking like my whole energy to me right now. I can't tell you how many times I've ranted about that over a dinner or at like a nice function that I was invited to where I kind of ruined it a little bit bringing that up. But it, yeah, like it, it seems like such a, I'm actually a part of a prison abolition group here in, uh, in Ottawa. But yeah, that's, that's kind of the whole thing is, you know, there's so many better ways that we can serve, you know, these people, that we can serve the community, that costs less, that doesn't perpetuate the same degree of harm. Um, right? It seems, and yet, especially conservatives, they're the first one to say, well, we have common sense and we care about personal liberties, except when it comes to Indigenous issues. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, it's been a really, and, and you know, I, I keep wondering, like, how do we fix it? And I, you know, I, I have this thesis that I want to do and then you know my plans to share that information but it, it's not like maybe what I'm doing for my thesis is novel but the ideas the concepts all of that is not novel and you know it's been around for a very long time and it's just like it's still you know falling on deaf ears for so much of it like and I, I don't know why you know you can you can support people you can spend less money things can be better overall right why are we doing it um but you know just to because i talk a lot about uh so just to give you some background my family i grew up the first memories of my life are my parents fist fighting that's my first memories so uh violence against indigenous women mm-hmm. and uh domestic violence is something i like watched my entire life uh whatever new study new information whatever comes out on that and um so we just had this awful tragedy in Nova Scotia that happened and it sounded like it was all gender violence uh, based. And like I, the first thing I tweeted out was to uh, my friends on Twitter saying, you know, we have given reports, inquiries, commissions, calls to justice, calls to action. Like we have the data, we have all the information you could possibly want. But there was a really great article and Pam Palmater was one of the co-authors of it or, or at least one of the contributors. And she had said, uh, you know, well, the, the entire article was based off of the RCMP and law enforcement can't actually ID um, a potential, you know, um, person that would snap like this because they don't understand because they're white, they want control and they um, have a fascination with guns and law enforcement and police cars. And it's like, so, they are the demographic and they, so they can't, you know, differentiate the difference between themselves and the average Canadian with way too many guns that has domestic violence charges underneath them. Because as you, I'm sure you know, the RCMP and law enforcement always blame the victim and are like, oh, what'd you say to trigger him to do that? As opposed to be like, what? <laughs> you need some serious like training on how to deal with people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a lot. I, yeah, I'm. It's it's a lot. It's 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 kind of overwhelming, and I. Yeah, and and you just want to. That that was the reason I got into graduate studies, even to begin with, was it was like okay, well, I have some knowledge. I want to like grow this knowledge, and I want to share this knowledge, and like make an impact. And then, you know, it's kind of reaching that point now where it's like, hey, this knowledge exists. Um, where's the impact? Like, there's there's so many great advocacy groups and and all that stuff and it's like well where you know what's going on get it get, 
why why is this the hard part really like the research should be the hard part why is like having it make an impact not the hard part or why is it the hard part now i mean mm -hmm. absolutely yeah. yeah it's yeah it's a frustrating and it gets talked about a lot but then it, it gets talked about like this how can we make our research more impactful and then we sit around and we talk about it and you know and i'm glad we have those conversations um because it's better than not doing anything but then it's like well, we're still talking about it and and not to discount the work that has been done because you know historically we have you know moved mountains but it's just it feels very slow and it feels very burdensome to the people that are already burdened yeah. and then now have to face like this additional like almost like a caregiver burden but of like you know trying to care for like a big community and trying to advocate for them and it's yeah it's really really shocking and horrible mm. You know, uh, one of the things that came across my Twitter last night was uh, the UN actually called out Israel for um, the way their treatment to women, children, and uh, men in the Palestinian jails. And they were calling on Israel to, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> stop this, and especially with COVID-19. So I actually tweeted to them and I said, hey, is there a way that we can get basically a similar statement to Canada? For their treatment of indigenous mm -hmm. people and um, they said yep here's the form so um, I was wondering uh, the organizations that you might be working with because um, you know obviously it, it's again serendipitous I hate using that word twice in one podcast but um, that I'm meeting with you and you're telling <laughs> me what where you're involved and I got this link and I'm like okay I'm gonna send it to Jack uh, do you want me to call you Jacqueline or Jackie Jackie is fine. <laughs> yeah, I'll send it to you so that you can have a look at it as well. Yeah. Yeah, because I think it, it'll matter Please a do. lot. Yeah. Yeah. We can start working on yeah. something like that. Because I, I, I find yeah. that uh, you were talking about advocacy groups and they're doing some wonderful work and I try to support them as much as I can. But sometimes it's who will actually hit submit, who will hit send, will it actually get out there? Um, who does yeah. the work, the background work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the organization that I'm um, currently working with, um, I'm, I'm not a founder or anything. My supervisor, Aaron Doyle, is one of uh, one of two founders for the group, but it's called the Criminalization and Punishment Education um, Project. And what they do is like it's and its foundation. It is about prison abolition. Um, but because we can't just abolish trash, um, you know, we, we try to at least kind of and and I say we, but I'm I am a cog in the wheel. Um, just try to like either improve um, indigenous uh, prisoner rights, which includes you know indigenous people. Sorry, that's kind of more what I focus on. Um, and like little, seemingly little things like having you know prisoners. We try tried to we made a lot of pushes with other organizations to get people out of jails and prisons if we could because of COVID. We don't you know it's a kind of like a nursing home it, it's very dangerous environment with you know people with lower immune systems and different issues that way um so that's kind of been you know those are different initiatives that we take um things like getting them better food people don't deserve to eat such terrible food at, like as if it's like a punishment um so the group specifically that I work with does a lot as it relates to the Ottawa Carleton Detention Center, but it's a whole network um, that can be seen on like our website or Twitter or um, 
Instagram, all that stuff, uh, Facebook. Um, but there's so many different groups kind of working together, um, promoting these same messages with the ultimate goal of getting people out of prison. Um, and for me specifically, getting Indigenous people out of prison, um, like especially at the rate that they're overrepresented. Yeah, 100%. I that was so very long-winded. <laughs> um, even the detention center type um, migrant rights organizations, like I've been trying to amplify their voice for the exact same reason. Like these are literal mm -hmm. uh, people trying to, you know, have a better life. And we basically said, yep, just stay in jail here for a while until we know what to do with you. But during a COVID-19 pandemic, mm -hmm. this is, I mean, you shouldn't treat humans that way anyway, especially with a lot of them have come mm -hmm. from, like war and refugee camps. They need like stability, mm -hmm. not a new jail. Yeah, 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 uh, and that's and that's been a big kind of another focus is yeah migrant detention and then um, just especially in on in Ontario there's been you know it's kind of quieted down now but there was this huge push to um, expand all of the <laughs> the jails and prisons and increase their capacity and stuff like that and so that's been a big thing that we've been working against is trying to you know that's enough already we don't need to because if it, you know if you build it they will come and, and, and we don't want any more people act like any extra people incarcerated it's just not it's not productive and it's traumatic and it's um you know that's still still a fabulous racist colonial institution so 100 percent. i the cbc just had a great podcast on that where they talked about um actually a young girl who was like bubbly happy Excited, and then over the course of their study, you know, her mental health just deteriorated, and um, the you know the guards would yell at her going to the fence to see her dad, and you know, it just it broke her spirit. And I, it's like, yay, I'm a part of a country who did that. Awesome. Um, and yeah. it just so if we can stop that, and I mean that's one example that they amplified in the podcast, as opposed to this is probably just standard for everyone having mental health issues. And then, you know, we don't really have um, proper services for that. And uh, we actually had a young Syrian, she actually committed suicide here in the Northeast. It broke my heart mm -hmm. because she was getting bullied at school. She didn't have the mechanisms to really help her. And uh, especially in our area, like the school board does not want to acknowledge bullying. And actually you're gonna get a kick out of this. So the CBE actually did a study to talk about bullying, excluding all parents, excluding all children, and just asking just teachers alone. And conveniently, they found that there is no bullying. It's like when the police investigate themselves and they find no wrongdoing, right? So I was just like, oh, no wow. wonder. And I mean, I've been, I have a friendship with someone, she has been working on anti-racism um policies in the cbe literally for decades and we're still here and yet her work like how frustrating is this so yeah i don't i don't uh, and she's white i should say she's also white so she's been working on this with her white privilege for decades and we're still here <laughs> yeah well and, and that's a big thing too i um i okay this is i Feel like I have to. I'm self-plugging a little bit, but I'm sorry for doing that. Oh, that's good. But, I love that. <laughs> but um, what what I got an award um 
so it's called it's called a shirk um but it's the social sciences and humanities research council tri-council award um and so at the master's level it's kind of like the highest award that you can get for graduate studies thank you <laughs> welcome you should be proud of that thank you um but a big a big focus of my um obviously my thesis is indigenous and, and law and justice focused and I was interested after I found out that I had been awarded this. Um, and so I went and I looked at previous years at the stuff that gets funded. And actually a big thing that gets funded at a very high rate, I think it was almost 6% of all people that um, are awarded this award. And this was last year, um, not my year. Um, we're focusing on indigenous uh, issues. And I was like, I was sitting there and I was thinking about that. And I was like, do you really think that like of that 6%, that those are indigenous people doing research about indigenous people and 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 maybe there are some and that's fabulous but I, and and i don't and i really don't mean to exclude um non-indigenous people from being a part of the conversation but if you're doing novel research like you might be the first person to present like indigenous knowledge or indigenous ideas or anything like that to the like wider audience and i mean i make mistakes all the time I, I can only imagine just with that extra layer of privilege that some stuff might be miscommunicated and, and they're getting a lot of money and a lot of prestige and they're being looked at as these fabulous scholars, which they probably are, but they, like you can see how this information might be perpetuated and, and, and kind of perverted a little bit unintentionally. Yes. And it, it's scary, it's scary to me. And I, and I would love to see how many indigenous people versus non-indigenous people even got this award. And you know what I mean? Yes, yes, I'm right there with you. We see that all the time. Um, I think that's a huge part of that, you know, Métis movement of trying to say like, how, how Métis are you? And do you really have the rights? But yet one of the most prominent people is a non-indigenous person and everybody's citing him and I cannot, wrap my brain around why you would be amplifying his voice over actual indigenous people so yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah well and, and you know i'm kind of diverging a little bit now but like even that issue of blood quantum has been like this really weird thing for me to kind of reconcile with where and you know like I, and and really like wonderful well-meaning people like you know they find out at Metis and they're like oh how native are you and I'm <laughs> like oh that's a that's a really big question to ask someone um when you know if it's any other you know no one sits there and looks at like a you know a white person saying oh I'm German and Polish and this and that and says how German are you are you really German like do you eat German food do you live in Germany you know <laughs> yeah no and, I'm right there with you I couldn't agree more how you know, to me, that is just acceptable racism that Canadians mm -hmm. perpetuate every single day and they get away with it, always have. And the fact that we're starting to push back about their racism, now you see, like, especially on Twitter and Facebook, like I just spent an hour blocking, you know, how many other new people because they were, um, you know, just being racist because it's always been acceptable and allowed to be racist in, Cal in Canada. And, it, and it, that's mm -hmm. what the problem is. Like, how do you... Um, when you're searching for your lineage and all of that um, go through there and one other thing I wanted to bring up was that um, my mother's actually a product of race and um, one of the I, I think conversations that need to be had about the so-called blood quantum and how native are you is that concept of well I don't know how many rapes do you have in your family thanks to colonialism because I can mm -hmm. I can label it in mine how about you <laughs> mm -hmm. 
I mean, that's not nice, but it's kind of that way to throw it back in their face. Like, you know how rude your question is, right? Like, yeah. oh, you're, you're a, a Holocaust survivor. How many Germans raped you before you came here? Like, I wouldn't ask that question, but it's so acceptable for Canadians to be like, how native are you? Because you look pretty mm-hmm. white. And that's why, like, it almost bothers me when natives are like, yeah, well, I'm kind of white passing. I'm like, no, you're not white passing. You're native. Just end it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, well, and I think, like, I, I know for myself, I even say that because, like, I recognize that I have been afforded a lot of privilege just by how I look. So that, you know, the racism I experience, it's still direct in that, like, you know, I still have to hear it coming out of people's mouths and stuff. But, you know, no one's sitting there being racist against the Indigenous community, like, at me, it's always like they're talking it at me, not realizing sometimes that I, you know, am Métis. And so, like, it's, that's still wrong. It's still violent. But I think we, and, and it's this weird thing that we all do, where we try to, like, put trauma and and experience on like these levels where it's like you know oh I didn't have it as bad as that person so why am I even talking about it right but yes guilty I I do that too I I know exactly what you're saying um I wanted to say thank you for being on my show um first and foremost what if your thesis comes out or if you're doing (laughs) activism and you need a tag or a retweet or you want to come back on the show (laughs) talk about something that would be lovely anytime anytime that would be so lovely natives I, are I, welcome on my show anytime <laughs> <laughs> that, well that's that's so lovely and um and something that i'm really putting a, a pressure on my department um to do and they're, they're very supportive um is to include um indigenous community members on my um my actual thesis committee which is an academic you know it's usually just people distinguished people in the university with PhDs that can serve on a committee um, but so it, it might be nice to, to talk more about that and see you know who we could include um, in in the the whole process the review process to ensure that there's a non-academic indigenous voice involved in this you know even, even me I'm, I'm still an academic right and I'm still you know it's a still a colonial institution so yeah, yeah no we're, we've been talking here in Calgary about decolonizing like the U of well all of the universities we have lots here in Calgary uh, other than just the uh, U of uh, C so but I mean it's its own process because ultimately who do you have mainly at the um, table mainly still white people even though there's Mm -hmm. lots of indigenous people so Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. all right well thank you for being on my show Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. I was I was listening to your previous episodes before you called, so now I'm gonna go back to that while I while I bead. <laughs> well, and I'd love to hear you chime in on any topic because, like, to me, obviously talking to me once I get started, it's shutting me up. That's the problem. And if I have somebody to actually bounce off of, man, we yeah. can go for three hours. <laughs> oh, I to- I totally agree, and it's. Yeah, it, it's it's such a such a pleasure and I'm very honored to get to talk with you. It's I'm so grateful. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm I'm the one who's honored here. I can't even believe <laughs> I get one listener, let alone um some of the numbers that my husband tells me. So thank you for being on my show. Again, if you have anything that comes up, whether it's um activism or thesis or something that you wanna focus on, we will totally um I'd love to have you back sure. to talk about it. 
Sure. Yeah. Maybe once we have some more concrete information, we can do a whole thing about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and after this COVID-19, if you, when you come back to Alberta, let me know. I mean, my daughter loves to go to um, West Edmonton Mall. So if you and I can meet up there or whatever, then I know like she'll be like, oh my God, let's go to Edmonton. Let's go see Granny. Let's go see So. <laughs> That would be lovely. I will. You, you will be the first person I tell, besides like my mom. <laughs> yeah, of go. course, of course. After COVID nineteen, which unfortunately yeah. I think might be a good year from now. And like, ugh, I'm so sad. We finally canceled the Calgary Stampede. So. Yeah, 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 and then, and that's a. Uh, if anything, that shows you how serious this is that they would dare to cancel the <laughs> well unfortunately for calgary we have some of the worst numbers for for this and the trend yeah. back to really poor workplace and migrant rights but don't get me started that's another day <laughs> <laughs> that's another day that's another day thanks again for being on my show jackie i appreciate yeah, thank you so much it was such a pleasure awesome honored all right so i am gonna all go right. on my uh script here and uh, just oh yeah, and for anybody who's listening, I need you all. If you're following me on Twitter, if you're following me on um, Facebook, you'll see me throwing out stuff about Turk the Ramsey turkey. Uh, a lot of people call him Turk Stigler, and there, I yesterday just put out a link on a coloring sheet of him because this is our COVID-19. Um, yeah, so we have a turkey that's loose around Calgary, and it's. Uh, <laughs> it's wondering where all the humans are and keeps checking on us like where are we so it's walked around our neighborhood it's crossed the bow it's went to tell a spark and and the cops are actually following this thing because you know it's a big calgary thing now and but it's so funny because here i am talking to jackie about migrant rights indigenous rights and in calgary the big thing is a turkey big that's the big thing so we care more about a turkey apparently than indigenous rights anyway Indigenous have been talking about the issues during our traumas and reports, commissions, public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words, honor the treaties, listen to the politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize marginalized people in their budget with gender equity plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, Indigenous education, gender health choices, gay straight alliances, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action. The uh, recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, the violence. Oh, I just had that conversation today on Twitter. People are like, yeah, Claire's Law is such a good win for the UCP. I'm like, hold up. Do you know how many freaking child welfare reform reports there are with zero uh, implementation of it? And, and Claire's Law wasn't even on that as a recommendation to do. Anyway. Violence prevention programs, the 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on MMIWG. Denying these uh, reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the justice, educational, health institutions with multiple reports that say the same thing. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, and sexism, they literally have zero business running. A really great article I said out loud in episode 62 is Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies, and you can Google that. Again, actually written by an Indigenous person. Um, I want to continue by putting cultural safety into action. Uh, you can create a safer space for Indigenous people, people of color, 
those with disabilities, LGBTQ2+, you have to look at cultural safety like first aid for marginalized people. You have to do something. Having good intentions is not enough. And I'll give you an example. Um, I have a friend who's so racist and I have to work with her and other people see her being racist to me and they do shit. They do sweet fuck all about it. But this is what I mean when you have to do something and having good intentions is not enough. You have to take action and make that change. You have to speak out against racism. Um, something, I'll give an example that happened to me yesterday while I was at Mac. There was a really aggressive black truck that came up and um, parked really awful. And then there was a tiny car beside me with a young woman and a, and a child in the back. And he started screaming at her and she smartly stayed in her car until he went into Max, got whatever he was getting, goes back into his car. But in the meantime, I took pictures of his license plate, took pictures of him. So when we all, when I waited with her and when he left, I got out and I said, I took pictures. Do you want them? I can text them to you. She said, no, and that's fine. I can delete those pictures. Mm -hmm. But the bigger picture is I did something. You have to be an ally if you see people being marginalized, if you see people being awful. Uh, take responsibility for your own learning. So if you heard me say things like, oh, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, and you don't know what I'm talking about, go learn about that. Read about it. Reflect. Ask questions. Don't always expect this learning to come from Indigenous people, because the chances are if you Google your question, it's there. Uh, take the time for self-reflection. Be aware of your own assumptions and biases. I'll give you an example. So I have uh, this woman, I finally just unfriended her. She wants to be a, a, a settler ally, but she's always so shocked whenever we share anything that's injustice related when it comes to Indigenous issues. So for example, the Winnipeg police go and shooting and killing three Indigenous people because they can. And I share this and it's like, oh my God, I'm so shocked. Ah, la, la, la. Well, that is your assumption and bias that police actually care that um, indigenous people get treated this way. And if you've said this to me multiple times, you clearly are not getting it. Your bias is just going to be there, which is sad because I want to help you, but I can't. You are, you're actually like, you know, giving me racial battle fatigue by me constantly explaining when you say, you know, this is so shocking to you, it hurts my feelings because it's like, I've literally, literally shared this information for years. So if it's shocking to you, you're just not paying attention or you just can't comprehend it. Um, so question everything you've learned, and I use quotes because as my friend Jackie so eloquently talked about, people think they know when they actually have bias and, and assumptions that skew their, their, what they think they've learned about indigenous people. Take steps to actively disrupt those stereotypes. Commit to lifelong learning. Be prepared to be uncomfortable. Understanding colonialism, the legacy of racism is an ongoing and difficult task. So if you Google uh, cultural safety, you will find lots of resources, including heretohelp.bc.ca. Uh, internalized racism, lateral violence is another form of violence. These are Googleable things. You can look at them up. And um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, but it's a form of violence against Indigenous people or marginalized folks that experience racism, um, a structure of racism on our land by, you know, Indian acts, Indian residential schools, prisons, land clearing policies, so many things, RCMP. Another resource, racialequitytools.org. Uh, Donna Bevins has lots of information about internalized racism. There's do's and don'ts for bystander intervention by the American Friends of Service Committee. 
or you can find out um, how to make your uh, witness. Like, so what I had described with that woman is what bystander intervention can look like. And it can look a little different for you, for whatever, whatever your situation is. But I want to emphasize, do not call the police. Um, as we've seen, calling the police means dead Indigenous people and that we're not alone. Black people are uh, targeted. We have uh, Muslims, um, Muslims, Arabs, lots of folks that are, I, we have an incident here in Calgary with the fellow with uh, schizophrenia called the police for help and they shot and killed him. So don't necessarily call the police unless you're being asked to, but don't do nothing. Silence is dangerous. It communicates approval and leaves the victim high and dry. If you find yourself too nervous to, or afraid to speak out, move closer to the person being harassed and communicate your support with your body. Teach your kids about accountability because these racist pricks are learning it from somewhere. Um, if you're experiencing emotional distress and want to talk, call the First Nation Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if you're a texter, you can also text them at um, hopeforwellness.ca. Violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely without interruption, without tone policing, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear. Indigenous opinions, but sure want to tell us theirs, usually by people who know nothing about Indigenous colonialism, the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, our rights, typical microaggressions, people dealing with internalized racism, so they become the gatekeepers and survive off the status quo, or other people who are still so in their trauma that they stop people from doing the work and depleting personal resources. External and internalized racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. And that's why I created this boundary uh, with a podcast, just so we could be heard. I want to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom of what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family roots. And teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It's through her I'm a second generation proud Calgarian. Thank you to my husband, Darcy, for producing and editing this show. On top of being my husband, my childhood friend, father of our children, and support down my journey of the Red Road, he has witnessed decades of racism and sexism that I've experienced. To our child, who we are blessed to learn from every day, we are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. And my hope is that my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they'll understand. Again, my Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. I want to say thank you to Adam, Alexandria, Beatrice, Brian, Celine, Diana, Jocelyn, Judy, Karen, Kenna, Leah, Marisa, Natalie, Nathan, Rebecca, The Sprawl, Vanessa, Tiffany, and Veronica. I want to say thank you all for signing up. And I want to say a special shout out to the person who gave us an extra 50 bucks. I can't tell you how much that helped um, because this runs at a deficit, but it's fine. <laughs> at least I get a place to, like, dear diary, um, if you did one donation or had many and had to quit for financial reasons, I just wanted you to know I appreciate your support. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. For those who cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com like Jackie did. Uh, send in your comments and your questions, and we are also on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And I want to give a side eye to those Calgary rabbits, especially during the COVID-19. You are lucky I'm not your dish.
and my beautiful cousin would respond, or you'd be in my dish. <laughs> Thank you, everybody.